Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick. Uh, I would normally be joined on mic by my co-host, Robert Lamb, but Rob is out on the day that we're recording this. So instead, I'm being joined by a couple of friends from here in the Stuff Network. Uh, today on the podcast, we have Annie Reese and Lauren Vogelbaum, uh, specifically, well, of Many different projects, but I would say in your capacity today, you are coming to us as ambassadors of the show Saver. Uh, what's going on, Annie and Lauren? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having us on. Um, yes. And also calling us ambassadors of Saver. That makes me feel very <laughs> official, and I like that. Um. <laughs> I guess that, that makes it sound like you're like a detached representatives. You you are Saver. The two of you are Saver, and that is all Saver is. Along with our super producers, uh, Dylan and Andrew, yes. Uh, but but yeah, uh, so we have this podcast called Saver. It's about the science and history and culture of foods and drinks and other assorted materials related to those things. And uh, yeah, so when when you asked us to come on and talk about this subject, we were like, yeah, okay. <laughs> right. Uh, well, wait, before we get into today's topic, just, just give us like the, the mall food court uh, sample platter of savor. What, what, what are a couple of things you've talked about recently? Oh, good question. I jettison all of that from my brain the second that I'm done with it. Uh, <laughs> we, um, we've got an episode coming out today about um, a early American cookbook writer uh, by the name of Melinda Russell, whose story was almost lost to time. She was a free Black woman uh, living during the era of the Civil War. And uh, historians recently like unearthed this cookbook that she wrote that's really changing the way that we think about Black Southern cooking in the United States during that time. Because for a long time, the kind of air of thought is like, oh, that's poverty cooking. 
And it wasn't, it, or it's more nuanced and, and, and complicated than that. And so just like from this very normal human person's life, uh, it, it's just a, an amazing gift of historical knowledge. Uh, and what a great story. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we're just talking about artichokes or <laughs> whatever it is that it sea is. Sea urchins, they wear hats, Joe. Lauren told me about this. Sea urchins wear hats? Sea yeah. urchins love wearing hats. If you give them, it, it like helps them shelter from um, stuff. And so if you give them a little hat, they'll put it on their head. What are their hats yeah. made of in nature? Shells. Oh. Okay. Seaweed, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I will also say we've been lucky to uh, cross over sometimes with stuff to blow your mind. Uh, we had you on for one of our uh, food fairy tales once, Joe. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Did we talk about, um, oh, oh, uh, the poem, uh, Goblin Market. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. That time that I was like, oh, one of the many times that I was like, oh, is this one going to get HR called on me? But <laughs> 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 it's, it's a great poem. It's it's yeah. a little bit it's a little bit more racy than I ever remember. <laughs> well, that was a lot of fun. Um and I really really appreciate y'all joining me today. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Also, so I I was thinking about what would be great to talk about with Annie and Lauren. And uh, as a topic combining biology, literature, and food history, I thought it would be great to talk about the mysterious substance known as ambergris. And quick roadmap for the listener, in the first half of the episode, I'm going to talk about what this substance is and what its biological origins are. And then in the second half of the episode, Annie and Lauren are going to take the lead on discussing this substance as food. Uh, so pronunciation note at the top of the show, because <laughs> mm -hmm. this is an audio format. The word ambergris is spelled A-M-B-E-R-G-R-I-S, and it's derived from French, meaning, I think it's a contraction of French, but it comes from French for gray amber. So I think to a French speaker, it would be pronounced like ambergris, but in mm -hmm. English, it seems everybody says the, like a soft pronunciation of the S. So it's like ambergris or ambergris. I feel like I'm going to be saying ambergris because I can't look at the word G-R-I-S and pronounce the S even though I don't know French. But for some reason, that one in particular, my brain is just like, nope. Well, I, I appreciate that you'll be here to make me feel small. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, okay. I, I'm going to do the S uh, as much as I can. Um, who knows if we, we pinball back and forth. But to, <laughs> to kick things off today, I, I wanted to uh, start with a bit of narrative from Moby Dick. Oh, yeah. yeah. Comes up a lot. <laughs> Moby Dick comes up a lot on, on Saver? Yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. It does have a clam chowder chapter, doesn't it? It does. Yes, we talked about that. He got up to all kinds of stuff in that book. Um, That's accurate. <laughs> you'd be surprised how many things that come up a lot in Saver that you're like, wait, I wouldn't have associated this with food. Um, but here I am. <laughs> um. That happens a lot. Actually, we, we've had Moby Dick come up several times uh, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind in, in the past year or so. We did an episode on uh, whale spout, on like what it is actually, actually that is ejected from the whale's blowhole uh, and like historical ideas about that. And there's this wild chapter in Moby Dick where he talks about how like, oh, yeah, if you get the whale spout on you, that'll like blind you and burn your skin off and stuff like that. This is not true, uh, or at least not, <laughs> not, not usually. Uh, but yeah, Moby Dick is, is great fun. So that's where I want to start today. Herman Melville's novel, uh, I would say devotes not one, but 
two chapters to the subject of ambergris, uh, one to its pursuit in a sort of narrative sense, and then the other to uh, what it means. So I want to start by talking about chapter 91 of Moby Dick. Uh, called The Pequod Meets the Rosebud. And this chapter begins with a somewhat ominous epigraph from a 17th century English author named Thomas Brown. Uh, and the epigraph reads, In vain it was to rake for ambergris in the paunch of this leviathan, insufferable feeter denying that inquiry. <laughs> it's like wow. the saddest sentence I've ever read. We don't use the word feeder enough anymore. <laughs> yeah. We truly don't. Uh, so recap, in this chapter, the whalers of the Pequod, they cross paths on the open sea with another whaling ship, a French vessel, with a name that translates to the Rosebud. And it's ironically named because before they reach the ship, Ishmael, the narrator, notes that the ship reeks of death. He says it smells like a city that has suffered the plague. And the reason it smells so bad is that the boat is towing what Ishmael calls a blasted whale. Quote, that is, a whale that has died unmolested on the sea, and so floated an unappropriated corpse. So not a whale killed by the whalers, but a whale found dead on the water. And, uh, in fact, when they approach the ship, they discover a second dead whale in tow, quote, even more of a nosegay than the first. <laughs> I had to look up that <laughs> word. I think that means like a bouquet of fragrant flowers, nosegay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the whale appears to, uh, the second whale especially, appears to have been shriveled by disease before it died. Meaning that in one sense, the whaler would look at it and say, this is a whale of no value. Like the experienced whaler sees a shriveled whale and says there is no oil there to harvest uh, because oil is primarily what the whalers are looking for. However, to, to a different kind of whaler's experience, this does not mean it is without value. One of the mates of the Pequod, a rascally fellow named Stubb, goes aboard the Rosebud and scams the captain of that ship into cutting the dead whales loose by claiming that a blasted whale is a source of deadly fever to any boat that ropes it. So uh, he scares them, they cut the whales loose, and then once the con has succeeded, the rosebud goes its own way, and here I'm going to read from Moby Dick. Quote, Whereupon Stubb quickly pulled to the floating body, and hailing the Pequod to give notice of his intentions, at once proceeded to reap the fruit of his unrighteous cunning. Seizing his sharp boat spade, he commenced an excavation in the body, a little behind the side fin. You would almost have thought he was digging a cellar there in the sea. And when at length his spade struck against the gaunt ribs, it was like turning up old Roman tiles and pottery buried in fat English loam. His boat's crew were all in high excitement, eagerly helping their chief and looking anxious as gold hunters. And all the time, numberless fowls were diving and ducking and screaming and yelling and fighting around them. Stubb was beginning to look disappointed, especially as the horrible nosegay increased, when suddenly, from out of the very heart of this plague, there stole a faint stream of perfume which flowed through the tide of bad smells without being absorbed by it, as one river will flow into and then along with another, without at all blending with it for a time. I have it! I have it! cried Stubb, with delight, striking something in the subterranean regions. A purse! A purse! 
Dropping his spade, he thrust both hands in and drew out handfuls of something that looked like ripe Windsor soap, or rich mottled old cheese, very unctuous and savory withal. You might easily dent it with your thumb. It is of a hue between yellow and ash color, and this, good friends, is ambergris, worth a gold guinea an ounce to any druggist. Some six handfuls were obtained, but more was unavoidably lost in the sea, and still more perhaps might have been secured were it not for impatient Ahab's loud command to stub to desist and come on board, else the ship would bid them goodbye. Oh, Captain Ahab, so impatient. <laughs> yeah, he, he is. He's he not is. real. He's yeah. not very nice, is he? It's even worse no. <laughs> later when there's a ship that comes by toward the end that's like, we've lost people overboard. Will you help us? And he's like, no. <laughs> Have you ever seen Page Master? <laughs> There's a whole section with Captain Ahab, and he's a real not nice guy in that. Shout out to people who've seen Page Master. <laughs> I saw it when I was a kid. What what was the deal with that? It was like uh, the kid makes friends with books, and one of them is uh, like a Frankenstein, and one, one's a pirate. Yeah, Leonard Nimoy is the horror section. Whoopi Goldberg is fantasy. Patrick Stewart oh. is adventure. Uh -huh. they, huh. they like are trying to get out of the library. He's trying to get a library card, but they run into Moby Dick and Captain Ahab. And he just is essentially like, I want this whale. I don't care what happens to all of you. Anyway. <laughs> In character. Yeah. 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 In character. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so anyway, that's the chapter where they get the ambergris. And then the next chapter, 92, is just called Ambergris. And it's one of the narrator Ishmael's characteristic essays on the spiritual meaning of some piece of whale anatomy. Uh, in this case, the irony that such a refined and expensive material worth more than gold by weight in some markets, prized by the richest of the rich, would have such a revolting, carnally putrid origin. <laughs> And uh, and he goes on to say at one point, quote, who would think then that such fine ladies and gentlemen should regale themselves with an essence found in the inglorious bowels of a sick whale? Yet so it is. By some, ambergris is supposed to be the cause, and by others, the effect of the dyspepsia in the whale. How to cure such a dyspepsia it were hard to say, unless by administering three or four boatloads of Brandreth's pills, and then running out of harm's way, as laborers do in blasting rocks. Uh, so there's a poop joke in... Uh, <laughs> in Moby Dick because Brandreth's pills I had to look this up were as I suspected a 19th century laxative mm. um, and I don't know what the quality of laxatives in the 19th century was but I imagine it was like real good stuff probably not <laughs> subtle I'm guessing not subtle yeah uh-huh yeah um <laughs> So, the, so yeah, so the character Ishmael here is, the narrator is identifying ambergris as some kind of fecal mass or other intestinal blockage within the hind gut of the whale, which would be cleared in the same way that humans take medication to clear constipation. Interesting that Melville presents this theory of the origin of ambergris as non-controversial, even though for the past, like, thousand years— that that explanation would have been highly disputed, and we'll come back to the physical origins of ambergris in a bit. 
Um, but one thing that this chapter gets into that is absolutely true is that high quality ambergris is and for uh, hundreds of years has been extremely valuable if you can find the right buyer. It was historically known as floating gold and was sought primarily for its value in the manufacture of perfumes. But that wasn't the only thing. It had a bunch of other uses as well, uh, uses in medicine and in some cases as a culinary delicacy to be used in food and drink. And Annie and Lauren, that is why I wanted you to join me on the show today to talk about eating whale poop. Thank you. <laughs> we are honored and we're ready. <laughs> yeah, we usually talk about much smaller poops on, on our show uh, made by bacteria and yeast. So this is this is a treat. Yes. <laughs> were, you, were you telling me just a minute ago you, you have a sound effect for like microbial poops? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it goes and uh, there, there's usually a little bit of an echo behind it. But yeah, bacteria poop. Anyway, here, here's a good place to mention a, a major source that I was using going into this episode. I meant to finish the book before we talked. I was actually not quite able to. But it's a very interesting book called Floating Gold, A Natural and Unnatural History of Ambergris by Christopher Kemp from University of Chicago Press, 2012. Uh, and uh, th this thing is full of fascinating anecdotes about the history of the ambergris trade, uh, both, both long ago and much more recent. And just as one example of, uh, of the ambergris trade at a particular time, uh, Kemp explains in the prologue of his book that at the time he was writing, Ambergris was traded on the global market at up to $20 per gram, uh, depending on the quality. And for comparison, at the same time, gold was trading at about $30 per gram, so about two-thirds of the price of gold by weight. Uh, yeah, and uh, there were times and places when ambergris was worth more than gold by weight. But even at this modern price, a, a chunk of high-quality ambergris weighing like 50 pounds, which is not necessarily implausible, could be worth something like half a million dollars. Uh, so given this, when people think they've got a lead on some ambergris and they figure out what what it would be worth if it were the real thing, they sometimes become extremely avaricious and territorial. And one amazing thing this book does is document various ill-fated ambergris harvesting frenzies from history. Uh, it, it seems that most ambergris that enters the market in the modern period is not harvested directly from the body of a dead whale like Stubb did in Moby Dick, uh, though sometimes it is, as one example of, of this happening in the real world. Kemp tells the story of a man named uh, Louis Smith from Tasmania who, in the year 1891, came across the body of a dead sperm whale floating on the water. He towed it to the beach. Like you do. <laughs> yeah, and then collected a 180-pound boulder of ambergris from its intestines. Uh, he claimed by literally cutting the whale open and crawling inside its digestive tract to retrieve it. I would say this is not recommended behavior. I think you could easily suffocate and die doing this. Yeah, no, gosh. don't do not do that. What a way to go. Important safety tip. That's another thing in Moby Dick is like the perils of dying inside a whale carcass are fully explored. There's one whole <laughs> part where a character like falls inside a whale and the whale starts to sink. It's horrifying. Yeah, that sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> but according to a, uh, a newspaper article from the time, uh, Louis Smith's ambergris harvesting would have paid off because his, the chunk he came home with 
was estimated by several old whalers to be worth about 10,000 pounds. I guess, I don't know what that the relevant currency is there. If that's British pounds or Australian pounds, that'd be a separate thing. The pound, whatever the pounds were used in Tasmania at the time. And that would have been the year 1891. So this is a sizable, a very valuable haul. Mm-hmm. But, like I said, most ambergris is not collected from a dead whale. Instead, it takes the form of flotsam, strange hunks of material that float on the surface of the ocean, sometimes for years or even decades, before eventually washing up on a beach somewhere and being found. And so a lot of these uh, ambergris frenzies occur when somebody finds a weird, unidentifiable mass of something on a beach, and then people get the idea that it's ambergris. Yeah, they're like this large rock-looking thing that is kind of floaty and kind of greasy might be worth a half a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. let's yeah, find it, out. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking it's similar to how it's similar to those Daily Mail articles that come up like it seems about four times a day where it's like somebody found a carcass of some animal on a beach. It's a sea monster. And so I think the equivalent here is somebody <laughs> found a mass of some unidentified organic or inorganic material on a beach. It's ambergris. Yeah. Either monsters or ambergris, you know? <laughs> Anyway, so one example of these, like, frenzies is uh, described in the very first thing in Kemp's book. It's in the prologue where he talks about an event from September 2008 in a place called Breaker Bay, which is near Wellington, New Zealand, where a weird off-white object described as uh, sort of the color of dirty snow and about the size of a 44-gallon drum washed up on the shore, and people had different theories about what it was, but eventually a rumor started that it was ambergris, which, if true, would mean it it could be worth about $10 million in total, because this was a huge mass. So people started people started carving off pieces of it. They would like go home and get gardening tools and then go back to the object and hack off pieces, carry a piece away in a sling made out made out of a bed sheet, thinking that they were going to be rich. But within 3 days the mass was completely gone and once the material was actually analyzed, it turned out to be drumroll tallow, <laughs> uh, aka lard. A, it was a large mass of animal fat that had probably somehow like fallen off of a ship or broken out of its storage drum. We don't know exactly where it came from, but it was like, it was like lard. And the, uh, the Wellington regional council was begging citizens not to wash the lard down their drains, <laughs> uh, which is generally, but you don't want to, you don't want to put animal fat down your drains at all. No, no, not yeah. a 44 gallon drum worth. Um, all at the same time across the city. Wow. Yeah. Equally gross, but way less valuable. And there were other frenzies like this. There was the 1934 ambergris craze in a place called Bolinas, California, uh, where after people found weird masses of stuff on the beach, they they started concluding that this was ambergris, like that there was ambergris washing ashore. People went to go get it, and then actually they found out that these were like congealed chunks of sewage bonded with sewer cleaning chemicals. I think locally the sewers had just been cleaned out with some kind of chemical formula. Oh. And it, it, it made all these like white chunks that got washed out to sea and then brought in. 
Um, but despite the fact that there are these crazes for these like things that, that are not actually ambergris, uh, many people successfully make a lot of money by finding real ambergris on the beach and connecting with the buyer. And Kemp documents throughout this book that a lot of people involved in the ambergris trade are very squirrely about talking to interviewers and do not want to give away too many details about their methods. Uh, but he does end up talking to quite a few people who in the book who open up. And so he does find out things. But early on, a lot of the interviews are just like people who don't want to talk to him. And he, <laughs> he realizes it's because like, well, if they're people who, you know, are used to combing beaches for ambergris, they don't want to like give away their good spots or yeah. have other people coming in on, on their finds. Sure. Yeah. He said in an interview with a Hakai magazine that when he brought it up, Quote, it was like he had farted audibly. <laughs> yeah, he describes a lot of just like <laughs> dead silence on the phone. <laughs> Some people just hang up on him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, oh, I'm getting another call. Click. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. 
there's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, at this point, I, I would say, like, I want to be able to picture a piece of ambergris. We got a brief description in Moby Dick. Ishmael says it looks like ripe Windsor soap or like rich mottled old cheese. Um, but one thing that I think is really interesting is that if you read through real world descriptions of ambergris, you will start to realize that different ambergris specimens are radically different in description in terms of all different of all the senses. Basically, they mm -hmm. look different. They feel different. They smell different. So ambergris can apparently be a huge, sticky black mass with uh, overwhelming aromas of sheep dung or ambergris can be a pale, waxy green or yellow rock or kind of be like a large piece of white soap smelling sweet and fragrant in a way that is exceedingly hard to describe. So on one hand, I'd be like, how can this even be the same substance if it sounds like you're describing completely diametrically opposite physical characteristics of this thing? Um, but from what I can tell, the difference in appearance is largely due to a kind of seasoning process that takes place as ambergris floats in the ocean over years and even decades, being exposed to solar radiation and other forms of physical weathering and chemical reactions, becoming gradually transformed, uh, as Kim says, one molecule at a time, uh, into something somewhat different than it originally was. And it is this more seasoned version, the kind that's been weathered at sea for a long time that seems to be the more desirable high quality ambergris that like the you know the the highest end buyers will, will pay top dollar for however with like physical characteristics so wildly divergent i would have to wonder like how are you even supposed to know whether a random chunk of something you find on the beach is actually ambergris uh, and there are some tests, apparently. Uh, experienced ambergris buyers do certain tests. A famous one is called the hot needle test. You heat up a needle in a fire, you poke it into the mass, and if it's actually ambergris, this should cause it to leak out an oily fluid the color of dark chocolate uh, with a spe specific bouquet of aromas that uh, an experienced ambergris dealer will recognize. Uh, and then beyond that, you can do like actual chemical analysis with modern <laughs> lab techniques and stuff if you want. But then there are other cruder tests. For example, does it float? Ambergris apparently should float. If it, it sinks, it's probably not ambergris. Another mm -hmm. thing is, is it full of squid beaks? And the answer should be yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but I like that because it, it gives you a little hint uh, before we fully look at it, like what ambergris actually is. Yeah. So, okay. So, right. So, so far we know that it is in the guts of whales and it's full of squid beaks. Right. Mm -hmm. And it smells either really bad or really nice. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it looks like either like poop or like a rock. <laughs> and people want it. <laughs> they pay yeah. a lot of money for it. <laughs> Well, here's a good question. Before we get into like uh, the biological origins of ambergris or discuss its use, and uh, I'm very excited to hear what y'all are going to have to say about its use in cookery, I wanted to briefly talk about its use in perfume, which is one of the the main ways in which there has been market demand for ambergris over the years. Which, which I should say, like like perfume and uh, cookery are very intertwined, especially historically, but but today still, like a lot of the earliest recipe recipe books were at least partially uh, medicinal in nature, and lots of things that we would consider um, perfumey today were used as seasonings in the past, like like musk. Some mm. still are today uh, in some cuisines, like rose water. Um, and on the flip side, some of our modern seasonings have been and or still are really posh perfume ingredients like vanilla. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, rose water, do y'all, do y'all ever watch Great British Baking Show or whatever it's called, Great British Bake Off? I haven't that often, but uh, but I'm aware that it's it's a thing. Well, it's a it's a British, you know, like it's the most pleasant uh, cooking contest show ever. But mm-hmm. when, I, when I've watched it before, there's a thing where like contestants will always want to use rose water, but they like they they can very easily use too much rose water, and that's just like an an unforgivable sin. It's like too much rose water, <laughs> and this is absolutely ruined. It becomes disgusting. I don't even know what that would smell slash taste like because I'm not really very familiar with rose water, but I I know it's like a sensitive and ingredient. There's like some amount of desire for it. It seems like maybe kind of a, a sign of confidence or like a uh, a risky thing to use that mm. could be a big payoff. But if you use too much of it, it's just it, 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 it's dangerous. Yeah, it's well, I mean, if you've ever smelled a rose, it tastes like that, um, which <laughs> can be either delightful or if you go too hard, it's soap. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And mm. a lot of us associate it going back to perfume with perfumes that our grandmothers maybe wore or something. So it became sort of a like, you can see our episode for more about this. We did an episode in Rosewater. Uh, but it became sort of a like, oh, that's old people that's, use that's very that. very old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I still think it's delightful. Yeah, me too. I, I would just imagine that a lot of uh, things that would be used in perfumes that would be prized for their like really noticeable scent might be like that in cookery where it's like it's very delightful in small quantities but you could easily use too much and then it ruins the food mm-hmm. oh yeah i've yeah. done that with garlic i've put <laughs> garlic perfume <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's because you're a vampire lauren <laughs> what no I love the smell and taste of vanilla in foods, but one time when I was working at an ice cream store, I was making our waffle cones. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that was my job. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you put you put a sp- certain amount of vanilla in the mix, and I put more vanilla in than I was supposed to. And I was like, well, I like vanilla. What's this going to be like? Uh, horrible. Absolutely <laughs> disgusting. Just like uh, bitter and uh, inedible. Like you don't want to use too much vanilla. No, no. Which vanilla was the replacement for rose water in the U.S. This is, you know, it's all cyclical. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, if you go overboard with those kinds of um, very fragrant ingredients, you're going to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I I think another thing is that a lot of them, like, there's a disconnect between we prize them for their smell, 
And a lot of what we like about experiencing them in the food is the smell. But if you actually have an, like an amount in there that you can taste with your tongue, the taste is overwhelming bitterness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, interestingly, a lot of them, um, like rose water specifically, was used for coloring as well. It was like, a, oh, mm. adds this tint uh, to it. So there's a, you know, a lot going on when we add these ingredients to foods, for sure. So as you are saying, I think there's going to be some overlap with the appeal of ambergris as perfume and as food. But specifically uh, in perfumery, it seems ambergris has been uh, prized for two different things, both for its own intrinsic fragrance and then also as uh, what's called a fixative. I didn't know what that meant originally, so I, I had to look it up. And that means it is an element of a perfume that helps the whole fragrance last longer on the skin or on whatever you spray it on. I think sometimes people would actually apply perfumes to like articles of clothing and stuff, like to their gloves or something. Uh, and it would help fix the scent to either the body or to whatever surface it was applied to. According to uh, a paper I'm going to get to in just a minute, uh, Robert Clark's History of, of Ambergris, uh, many perfume chemists consider ambergris the best known fixative in nature. Quote, it preserves the note of a perfume after the perfume itself has departed. Yeah, and there's a, in, in, in terms of the chemistry of ambergris, uh, there's a compound in there that, that's a fixative called ambrian, uh, which is a precursor of the scent compounds uh, such as ambroxide and ambranol. Yeah, the way I understood it, uh, as I was reading from Kemp's book, it seems like the Ambrian is sort of like the grandparent compound of the the aroma compounds in uh, ambergris, and so like that molecule, while being fairly uh, fairly unscented itself, breaks down into a bunch of chains of other things, and these downstream products of it all have their own interesting aromas, and that blend is what gives rise to the the aroma of ambergris. Mm-hmm. Which is part of why when it's just floating on the ocean for a while, it starts developing these better scents, in some cases better. That would make sense, yeah. In fact, to go into that specifically, uh, so in the book, Kemp talks to a, a, a person named Dr. Charles Sell, who is a researcher with a company called uh, Givaudan, or I'm not sure how you say that, it's G-I-V-A-U-D-A-N, which is a large flavor and uh, fragrance manufacturer. And uh, Cell is is talking about exactly this like breakdown chain who says that, that, yeah, this core ambergris molecule, the one you were talking about, Lauren, is like a terpenoid. It breaks down into these other complex aroma molecules. And so like one decay product smells like tobacco. Another one smells like, quote, ocean. It's that like briny ocean scent. Another one smells like mold, feces, and and animals, like mammals. Uh, but then it gets to, there's a really unique breakdown uh, compound there called naphthofurin, which I'd never heard of before, obviously, but uh, Cell says, quote, if you look at the descriptions that people give, one of the breakdown products is described as briny ozone. Another one will be described as tobacco-like. But the naphthofurin, the only label we can put on it is ambergris because there's nothing else quite like it. And this is interesting because it, it, there, this section of the book gets into um, – People who have experience with ambergris talking about the difficulty of describing these unique aroma compounds that just don't really smell like anything else. And it's not like a 
it's not it, there's like a disanalogy with other types of sense data like say a shade of a color where you could say well it's like a lighter shade of red or you know or you could say like it's a darker shade of orange or something there's there are no degrees like that along a spectrum with uh smells they're just kind of like each uh you know molecule hits the olfactory bulb and produces a different pattern in the brain and so like some molecules just smell totally unique and there's nothing you can compare them to and i thought that was quite interesting and so today there are synthetic compounds that are used in perfumery that are designed to mimic ambergris uh, under trade names like like ambrox and stuff uh but from what i understand like some perfumers think that they're good other perfumers don't like them as much there seems to be a uh, there are some people who are like uh, sort of th think of themselves as natural perfumers. They want to use like traditional ingredients and less like uh, synthetic ingredients. And they think that that natural ambergris is just like sort of unbeatable in its qualities. I, I can't really comment on that. Yeah, I have some familiarity with ambergris as a uh, as a perfume ingredient, like the artificial stuff. I'm assuming I'm assuming that none of the like twenty dollar bottles of perfume <laughs> that I've purchased in my life contained actual ambergris. But um, but yeah, it's usually kind of shorthand in perfumery for like a like a sort of musky, sweet, woody note, I guess. Mm. Um, and I've quite enjoyed it. Yeah, that list you gave it that that overlaps with what I've read, like the wood woody sort of elements, but also the tobacco, also the the, the strong kind of animal smell and the sweetness. Um, and I don't know; it's hard to imagine. It's uh, it's it's funny to talk about with me just having no idea <laughs> what this smells like and reading the descriptions and just saying like this doesn't add up. Like it, my brain isn't making sense of what's being described. Yeah, yeah. I, I very nearly, or I had this thought last night. I was like, oh, I should go find one of my perfumes that has some of it in it. We're on, we're on the internet right now. I can't show you a perfume. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. On this video call. <laughs> so I didn't do that. <laughs> well, that's okay. I almost kind of am cherishing my own ignorance here. Something about it is, is making the subject all the more mysterious and fun to me. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. 
No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. I guess this leads us to the next question, which is like, what is ambergris actually? Like, how is it actually formed? So I think next we should do uh, like the biological origins of ambergris, and then we can talk about ambergris as food. <laughs> right. Once we get good and grossed out, then talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> like, just <laughs> smells strange, biological origins. Hmm. Let's eat it. <laughs> it seemed like the right, uh, right order to me. So the most detailed scientific study of ambergris and uh, the most detailed history of, of the formation theories that I could find was a 2006 paper by the British marine biologist Robert Clark. Uh, Clark actually uh, passed away several years back, but he seems to have been the world's foremost scientific authority on ambergris. It seems this is something that actually not that many people studied. Uh, and Kemp talks about this in his book that he tried to talk to a lot of uh, uh, scientists and marine biologists about ambergris, and a lot of them were just like, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, this paper is called The Origins of Ambergris in the Latin American Journal of Aquatic Mammals in 2006 by Robert Clark. And uh, Clark begins by quoting an ambergris dealer named Beauville, who explained in the year 1954 that, quote, not many people know what ambergris is, but those who do know it is not the feces of a whale. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know, don't know what it is, but we know what it's wow. not. And Clark says, to the contrary, <laughs> after... After decades of study of this mysterious substance, he is prepared to argue that it is indeed the feces of a whale, or to be a bit more nuanced, a, a sort of complex, quote, fecal product of the sperm whale. 
So before he explains the modern theory, Clark does a delightful recounting of the many, many historical hypotheses about what ambergris is and where it comes from. Uh, suffice to say, it has long been, in the words of Herman Melville, quote, a problem to the learned. Uh, he's, he says that in the 17th century, there was speculation about the or origins of uh, ambergris. Uh, and it was like a pretty popular subject. Is so, so popular, in fact, that in the year sixteen seventy seven or sixteen sixty seven, sorry, there was an author named Clobius. I think this was uh, Eustace Fetus Clobius, who recorded eighteen such ideas known at the time. So a lot, a lot of people speculating about where it comes from. Uh, here are a few examples. There's an author named uh, Fuscius who claimed that ambergris was a human-made fake. That it was like a composite made out of multiple other components, including uh, labdanum, which is the resin of a, of a rock rose plant, uh, but also aloe wood and the musk of a mammal called the civet. The, I think we were talking about the civet earlier, either before we were uh, either off mic or on. But yeah, the mm -hmm. civet is sort of a, a cat-like mammal, a carnivore. Yeah. Which, right, you get musk from, sure. Or you could. I don't personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was one uh, 17th century encyclopedist who claimed that it was simply dried sea foam. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, it's hard to see how that happens, but okay. Another said it was dried foam from seals. Seal foam, presumably, I guess, from their mouths. It doesn't say what the what seal foam that he's talking about there. <laughs> Uh, another popular idea was that it was the excrement of a particular species of bird found in the Maldives, locally called the, ooh, and I'm going to try my best with this word, the uh, Anakangri Pasqui, which uh, lived on a diet of fragrant herbs. So I guess if it eats fragrant herbs and then it poops, and uh, that would explain why the, the poop is so fragrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, some wrote that it was a form of lizard musk, which was secreted from the sexual organs and throat glands of crocodiles. Another idea was that it was a honeycomb, as in like from a bee colony, which fell into the sea and then was crystallized by exposure to the elements. Oh, I like that one. I, I like that, too. Uh, unfortunately, it's not true. <laughs> Another idea <laughs> was that it, it's just a rock. Like, it's a, just a rock or a type of, like, clod of earth of a particular sort. Uh, and in fact, there would be, if we could go out and find them, boulders and even entire islands made of this type of rock where, the, like, the ground was ambergris. Uh, and these were just, like, the chunks that broke off and floated away. Uh, the author of a uh, of a ninth century Arabic text mentions that ambergris uh, was a fungus that grew in the dark at the bottom of the ocean and could be like ripped up from the bottom by ocean currents and then floated around. And this idea was held by many subsequent thinkers. The 10th to 11th century Islamic physician and polymath Ibn Sina, also known as Avicenna, uh, sort of stuck to the idea that it was fungus, but thought instead that it was like a terrestrial fungus that grew on rocks and then fell into the water from land-based rocks and then floated around rather than originating on the seafloor. Uh, some writers seem to think it's a type of fruit. The 17th century natural philosopher Robert Boyle published a text containing the idea that it was gum exuded from the roots of a seaside tree. And then another idea favored by many later authors was that ambergris was a form of uh, bitumen exuded from vents on the seafloor. And bitumen is this like dense, thick, black mixture of hydrocarbons that is a natural product of petroleum. So you, you can think basically tar. Uh, so I, uh, my idea from like looking at this wide range of options is 
like it it just gives you a sense of how baffling this substance found on the seashores was. It was a hot commodity, but like its properties are so elusive that it could be anything from bird dung to honeycomb to fungus to a <laughs> petroleum constituent. It's got a lot of mystique. It it definitely yeah. like even now it's pretty recent that there's been more information about it, but it was certainly yeah, just the range of explanations of what it could be the tales behind it, the range of smells. Like, this is something that people are like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I and I will say that historically, like, there were a lot of tall tales told about other precious spices and substances, like, because people didn't want you to horn in on their on their product, right? Mm. So, you know, like, like, if, like, like Arab traders would be like, oh, yeah, that comes from a dragon on this one island. Don't go looking for it, man, like dragons, dude. Um, and so some of these stories might have a little bit of that flavor to it as well. I don't know. That's a very good point. I mean, and it sort of connects with the idea that even in the even in the modern day, uh, a lot of people who are involved in the ambergris trade like don't want to talk about it. You know, with with outsiders, they're not interested in sharing details of what this stuff is and how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you can imagine that similar co- confusions could have arisen in in centuries past for similar reasons. That like you know, people did not particularly want to share the details of how they made their money in this trade and thus just deliberately confused outsiders with maybe uh, false details or other things. Yeah. It's also interesting considering the legality, too, which I know know we'll get into later. That's probably not what was at play here. Um, But I just think that that's a fascinating part of this. It's sort of like... "Mm." (laughs) Yeah, find this thing. We don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're saying that's another reason, like, people are hesitant to talk about it because, yeah. Yeah, like, maybe let's just not discuss this. Let's just leave it as it is. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Doesn't it smell weird? Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, one last common confusion before we get to the main modern theory is that lots of authors uh, in history thought that ambergris, which we now know is, in fact, a biological product of the sperm whale, they thought that it was actually the same thing as an, in reality, completely different, unrelated biological product of the sperm whale, the waxy substance known as spermaceti, which is found in the whale's head and was the primary product sought by whalers like the crew of the Pequod. You know, that was the whale oil that uh, whalers were trying to extract and that tragically led to the, you know, the great reduction in the populations of sperm whales around the world. Even in some cases where ambergris was found inside sperm whales, it was sometimes thought that it was not actually something made by the whale's body, but something that the sperm whale had come across in the ocean and devoured. Uh, So as I stated earlier, Clark here thinks that the best theory of ambergris is that it is a sperm whale coprolith, a.k.a. a mass of feces hardened into a rock-like consistency. Uh, Clark traces this idea back to an 18th century author named uh, Shvediver. I don't know if you say those W's like V's, either Shvediver or Shvediver. Great name either way. Oh, yeah. Um, There have been some competing modern theories, such as the notion that it is primarily a concretion of bile from the whale's digestive system or that it's a secretion of whale uh, like sexual glands. But Clark argues that these don't really fit with the evidence. So here's uh, 
I'm going to work here from Kemp's synthesis of Clark's favorite copperlith theory. And this does seem to be, from what I can tell, the, the explanation that is currently the most widely accepted by cytologists and other relevant experts. So the average sperm whale eats a lot of squid. You know, sperm whale life is like it's diving down um, to meet its metabolic needs. It has to eat like a ton of squid every day. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Um, and so it hunts for squid by diving deep into the, the dark, the meso- mesopelagic zone, and hunting with the help of echolocation, the acoustic clicks that it can emit uh, with the help of its giant box head. So the whales swim down, and they hunt, and they eat lots of squid. The sperm whale's got four different stomachs, uh, and it digests its prey in different stages here. Uh, you got the soft, liquefied parts of the prey animals that they, they pass on through the stomachs to the intestine, while the uh, small number of indigestible hard parts, and squid, you're primarily talking about beaks there, because squid have you know, their mouth is a beak that is in many ways morphologically similar to a bird beak. It's like a parrot's beak, sort of. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they've also got a hard part that's an internal organ that's a a quill-like hard part called a pen. These things gather in the sperm whale stomachs, and then eventually when there's too many of them, sperm sperm whale's like, and it vomits them up. (laughs) Hairball, yep. Yeah. (laughs) This is not ambergris. This is just whale vomit, and it's mostly squid beaks. For some reason, sometimes a mass of beaks fails to be vomited up and instead goes in the other direction. And here uh, Kemp quotes from Clark, and this section is very good, so I must quote from Clark as well. So these are Clark's words here. Quote, Now once in the Antarctic in 1948, on board a boat called the Southern Harvester, I examined a sperm whale whose cylindrical last stomach was entirely filled with a compacted mass of squid beaks, squid pins, and nematode worms. The mass was 1.2 meters in length and 0.4 meters in diameter. This last stomach is normally empty except for a few small beaks, pins, and nematode cuticles. We have only to imagine an imperfect valve a leaky sphincter between this last stomach and the intestine when all conditions are set for a train of events which should result in ambergris. And I think the the metaphor of a train there is perfect because it's like plowing down the intestinal tract. Yeah. Uh, so, So here what happens is like this tangled wad of beaks passes into the intestine, which is not evolved to pass solids. It's only for liquid matter is supposed to Mm -hmm. be going into the sperm whale's intestine. The hard beaks irritate the intestinal lining as they pass. Eventually, this mass of beaks and compacted fecal matter, it becomes stuck and it obstructs the rectum and fecal matter builds up behind the mass And then to quote from Kemp here, quote, the whale's gastrointestinal system responds by increasing water absorption from the lower intestines and gradually the feces saturating the compacted mass of squid beaks become like cement, binding the slurry together permanently. It becomes a concretion, a smooth and striated boulder. So it's like forming a cement-like solid hardened rock-like mass here. Uh, And at various points, the feces will sort of be able to pass by, but over time, the the mass of beaks and fecal matter becomes harder and harder and denser and more solid, and new layers are added to it, like the rings of a tree trunk, and eventually, somehow, the mass leaves the whale, either because the whale is actually able to pass it, it's unclear how often this happens, if ever, 
or because the whale dies and its body is subject to scavenging and decomposition and eventually the the chunk of fresh ambergris is separated from the rest of the remains, floats away through the water, and then it is acted upon and transformed by the elements for who knows how long, maybe decades, before it either washes up on a beach and is found or decomposes completely in the ocean. And uh, the process here is apparently quite rare. Clark estimates that it only happens in roughly one out of every hundred sperm whales. And, uh, of course, sperm whale populations worldwide li- world were greatly reduced by commercial whaling from uh, roughly like 1800 to the, till the 1980s or so. And populations are probably recovering now, but still reduced from where they were. So ambergris has probably always been a pretty rare nature fact, and it's probably even much rarer now than it was hundreds of years ago. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think there's some speculation that... uh, that the ambergris is actually what winds up killing the whale in yeah. a lot of these instances because it has this intestinal blockage that eventually, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that is speculated to be the case, that it builds up until finally nothing gets around it and the whale dies from it. Uh, and that would go again to, like, the observation, I know this is just a fictional novel, so and it was from the 19th century, so very likely to be wrong, but it kind of fits with, like, Melville's observation that it was, like, a sick, emaciated whale um, in which it was found. Yeah, I'm really impressed by, I feel like that is, like, score one, uh, one out of, like, thousands for Melville being scientifically (laughs) correct about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of stuff is wrong in Moby Dick, but it's always wrong in an interesting way. You're making me want to revisit Moby Dick for the first time in my mm. entire life. <laughs> oh, well, you know, uh, do as you will. But yeah, I think there's, <laughs> there's a lot of interest to be found in it. Um, and it's not just the chowder and, and stuff. <laughs> um, but speaking of chowder, hey, I want you all to tell me about ambergris as food, because one of the most shocking things to me uh, after learning about the substance is not only was it used in these small quantities as like a fixative in perfumes, not only was it used as many natural materials are as a, as a, a medicine of various sorts or a, say uh, like a potency enhancer for people. It was also just used as a culinary item. Yep. Yepers, uh, squid beaks and intestinal leakage. Yeah. That's, uh, as it turns out, has a lot of culinary uses throughout history. Um, so I, I, I would like to start by actually quoting from Kemp because he wrote in, in his book about using ambergris as a seasoning. And mm. okay. So he, he, he reports, it crumbles like truffle. I fold it carefully into the eggs with a fork. Rising and mingling with curls of steam from the eggs, the familiar odor of ambergris begins to fill and clog my throat, a thick and unmistakable smell that I can taste. It inhabits the back of my throat and fills my sinuses. It is aromatic, both woody and floral. The smell reminds me of leaf litter on a forest floor and of the delicate, frilly undersides of mushrooms that grow in damp and shaded places. (laughs) I want to cry. Tears streaming down my face. The beauty of eating this whale poop. Like, I'd like how even knowing what knowing what we know and knowing that he knows what we know because he he also writes about it in his book of like where this comes from. The description of it like filling his throat like that in the same way that it fills up to clog the intestine or rectum of the whale. 
It's a very specific kind of poetry. Yeah. yeah it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, a writer for Gourmet Magazine reported in 2008 that eggs cooked with ambergris are, are good. Uh, don't go well with bacon, but are good with toast. Yeah. Hmm. Don't so go you, well with bacon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I wonder why. Like, I, it, is it sort of too meaty on its own, maybe? They were puzzled as well. They they were kind of like, yeah, it didn't it didn't go well with the bacon, but the toast was fine. Hmm. I feel like when you eat bacon, though, you're kind of there for the bacon. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh. <laughs> like the bacon is a big part of what why you got whatever you're eating. Yeah. So maybe it's yeah. just like it was a distraction from the bacon. I don't know. Um, but- Bacon is kind of a perfume of its own. And so maybe bacon, because it has those like smoky, complex, sweet aromas, doesn't play well with other very strong aromas. Do you think that could be the case? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Because, yeah, like the smell of bacon is so distinct. Um, I can see it, again, never having smelled ambergris. I can imagine that it kind of... It messes up with the smell of the ambergris, and it messes up with the smell of the bacon, so it uh-huh. kind of clashes. You've yeah. got too, too many different kinds of mammal smell coming at you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. 
Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. So so y'all mentioned that uh, one of the things that might be affecting people's willingness to talk about ambergris or ambergris is um, is the fact of its legality. So, like, what's going on with that? Right. So, okay. Uh, in in international law, I think it's technically it, it's like it's like legal to the point that it's up to individual countries to regulate for or against it, um, as with any other protected animal product, any product that comes from a protected animal species. Okay. But uh, so yes. It is illegal in the United States as a clause in the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972, but it's not really prosecuted. Um, a- apparently, there have only been like like nine reports of people, like 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 nine reported instances of people collecting ambergris in the U.S. in the past ten years or so, and none of them have come to actual prosecution. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, laws vary by country. Uh, there have been recent arrests for its possession in India, uh, but. That its its technical illegality does not prevent it from showing up on American menus. Uh, for example, in like posh bars as an ingredient in hot chocolate or snazzy cocktails. This one bartender working with it in Chicago back in 2016 told Food 52, "It smells like a tide pool in your grandmother's basement." <laughs> Mm. In a good way, apparently. Uh, oh. Yeah, the cocktail, <laughs> the cocktail they were using it in was like a, was like a three rum blend with some pineapple kind of drink, and 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 apparently, yeah, the ambergris added a hint of the ocean. Okay, tide pool in your grandmother's basement. I can see that how that connects to like the decay or the the decomposition molecules we talked about earlier, because it's like one in one sense it smells like the ocean. It's kind of briny, but in the other sense of your grandmother's basement, what, I think one of the compounds was said to smell like mold or like feces and mm-hmm. so the, maybe the mold is the basement part yeah I but and then wood. Flo- that floral wood note might be mm. the the grandma yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the gra- not the, the grandma's house right right yes definitely yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, but okay, all right. Uh, how did we get here? So, um, uh, older records are scant, but uh, but but let's start with this Egyptian cookbook from the 1300s that has a whole bunch of different uh, medicinal, like perfume, incense kind of uh, recipes that list ambergris, um, but also does include a recipe for for a dried apricot compote made with floral essences pomegranate juice, and mint, and that you then put in a vessel, quote, infused with smoke of ambergris. Mm. And because ambergris was often used as an incense, I'm thinking that fumigation might have been a popular way to flavor dishes with 
with the stuff. Um, yeah, by, by smoking oh. it, kind of like smoking meat in it or something like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So I guess when I imagined it being used in food, I would have primarily thought just like directly adding it to the food. But you're saying like um, like the thing where you'd add the smoke of it in an enclosed container to like sort of, uh, I don't know, to perfume the food with the aroma of it. But you're not actually like chewing on pieces of it in this case. Uh- in that particular, well, uh, in that particular case, no, but certainly just chunks of it were being used. Okay, another oh, okay. cookbook <laughs> from right around 1500 from uh, India that had a lot of per- Persian influence. Um, it was written for the sultan who was famous for his eccentric devotion to pleasure. Okay, this cookbook <laughs> included a recipe for making um, the, these skewers of stewed meat that you would then uh, rub down with saffron, white ambergris, and rose water, and then cook again with rice, ginger, salt, and onions. And serve with a good gravy, whatever that means. Mm. And that sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I want to eat this. <laughs> yeah, very expensive. Like like saffron is is was and still is one of the most expensive things on the planet that people insist upon eating. Uh, and and rose water would have been pricey at the time too. So this is truly a like feast of pleasure. And that's just one example. Uh, there are dozens of recipes in the book, sweet and savory, plus for perfumes that include ambergris. Mm. Yes. Um, and there were decadent Persian sherbets, sherbets, uh, <laughs> once called, they once called for ambergris as an ingredient alongside water and lemon. Um, and that's mm. that's been a theme coming up in like ice cream or some kind of similar dessert. Uh, yeah. Ambergris. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it might have spread to Europe through these kind of Arab-Indian cultural exchange routes along, along the spice routes. And so by the 1500s-ish, cooks in the Italian courts were flavoring stuff like biscotti and other desserts with it, often paired with musk, like musk and ambergris in mm. these baked goods um, and, and other uh, sugary things. By the 1600s, France had picked this combination up, musk and ambergris, and a famed chef and cookbook author, uh, Francois-Pierre de Lavren, had a bunch of recipes uh, calling for ambergris in this book of sweets that he published uh, in candied fruits, in marzipan, in creams, in lemonade, and in wine. Right. And beginning around 1660, English cooks started publishing recipes utilizing ambergris. Um, The English especially enjoyed cooking with it because... It was rare and therefore luxurious. This is one of my favorite things when we do topics like this. There's a part of me that wonders if there's like a willful, surely it didn't come from a whale's rectum, or if it even matters. Um, It's rare, therefore we want it in our recipes to show that we can afford it. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of these recipes were for desserts or something otherwise very fancy, um, Baked puddings made with bread or ground almonds were some of the most popular ways to use ambergris as a food ingredient, um, mostly sweet in the sweet variety. Um, and ambergris also started showing up in medicinal drinks, alcoholic drinks like posset and punch, candies, and gelatins. It was often, again, paired with musk uh, or things like rose or orange flower water and with some warm spices. So especially considering how expensive sugar still was at this time, these were all like really show-off kind of kind of recipes. Mm. It also showed up in possibly the first English recipe for ice cream dating from around 1665, which listed as suggested flavorings either mace or orange flower water or ambergris. Oh, yeah, that's something I had seen, this association with this uh, early ice cream recipe. I, I have a question. If ambergris, if ambergris works as a, uh, 
as a fixative. Like it's really good at making smells stick to surfaces and linger there. Even smells of things that are mixed with it, not necessarily just its own smell. I wonder how that would affect its use in food. Like, do you, do you want, I don't know, is there some sense in which food pleasure could be enhanced by, uh, by aromas being kind of like stickier to surfaces, even maybe including, I don't know, the plate, the utensils, the inside of the mouth and things like that? Or is that an undesirable thing in food? I haven't, I haven't fully figured that out, but it seems like this fixative quality could affect its appeal as food as well. Hmm, yeah, I, I wonder if it would maybe uh, help stick around in a food some of the uh, some of the scents and flavors that would otherwise kind of gas off and get lost mm. to time like like if you bake it into bread it, that fresh bread smell might stick with the bread I don't know hmm seems possible yeah I, I feel like that it would be a much like the less the better and a lot of spices at the time were that way like you want that kind of fragrance. But if you use too much, then it gets overpowering. Um, so I can see, I can see that ambergris would be valuable in that case of like I want the smell, but it sticks. So mm-hmm. it kind and of lasts longer. Less of whatever you're trying to, yeah, show off yes. with. Which apparently could have led to a death. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> intrigue! <laughs> I have to bring the intrigue. Um, allegedly. <laughs> King Charles II of England died by poisoning via his favorite breakfast, which was eggs and ambergris, in 1685. (laughs) Um, And some speculate that the ambergris may have hidden the taste of the poison. (laughs) Mm. So also a poisoning agent, potentially, (laughs) a way to kill someone. (laughs) Because it, like, it's so, because the aroma is so strong, it would, like, mask other things. Yeah. 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 And you just, like, soaking up that ambergris smell you're not thinking about any poisons mm. and then that's the end <laughs> allegedly Wait, but his, his favorite <laughs> breakfast was eggs and ambergris so again yes. i'm wondering is this just like big just chunks of it cut up in the eggs or how, i suspect how it's like it's like a shaving maybe maybe like shaving a little bit ah. of it into the eggs the way that kemp was kind of talking about in the yeah. passage yeah i don't know if I he was so. inspired by charles the second or not but here we are <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, all right. Moving from intrigue to Milton, um, <laughs> we uh, we have to talk about Paradise Regained. Um, so, uh, so this was first published in 1671, and in it, uh, Milton describes a feast worthy of royalty. Um, uh, the, the passage begins. A table richly spread in regal mode, with dishes piled and meats of noblest sort and savor, beasts of chase or fowl of game and pastry built, or from the spit or boiled, grisamber steamed. Ah, okay. So grease amber there would just be an, another name for amber grease, a sort of inversion. Yeah. Yeah. People think that he probably just uh just transposed it because of uh for for the for the meter. But uh yeah. Yeah, it, partially because it is transposed like that, future annotated editions of the work really like to remark on this, also because people are just fascinated by ambergris. Um, one note from 1753 has this really long passage about recent and contemporary culinary use of ambergris. Uh, the, the, annotate, the annotators cite it to a curious lady, which I think is rad. Great. I, <laughs> if... <laughs> 
if anyone ever forgets my name, feel free to just be like, oh, some curious lady. Yeah, cool. Wait, do you um, file that under L or C or is it lady, comma, a curious? <laughs> that's, so. that's, that's a style guide question. That... <laughs> Uh, but okay, so this curious lady uh, says that it was previously the, oh, I can't French, the, the, the haugu of Queen Elizabeth's court, um, the hautgut, uh, the, the, the posh, the posh and popular um, culinary thing. Mm. That that word, yeah. Uh, like a main ingredient in every course of a banquet, but especially on all manner of meats. And furthermore, used to excess by the notorious Cardinal Wolsey of King Henry VIII's court. Um, he was the one who like couldn't get his marriage annulled. So he was, yeah, anyway. Um, and this curious lady furthermore reported that she had had it herself as a seasoning on a baked pudding. Um, and of all of what she just said, I, I believe that part for sure. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say baked pudding. A pudding in this context, would that mean like a, like a dessert, just generally some kind of dessert? Sure, probably with um, probably the kind of thing that um, that Annie was talking about, something with like like eggs and cream and maybe bread or ground almonds um, oh. as as a kind of thickening base, and then uh, and then baked until it's basically like a custard. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of these a lot of these recipes from these times, uh, especially when you got, when it got to England, were for like cream based or egg based things. Can I fill in a piece of context about Paradise Regained? I would love you to, yes. <laughs> okay, so this is, of course, you know, sequel to Paradise Lost. So I was wondering, uh-huh. in this story, who like, who's who's going to eat the Grease Amber Steamed? Like, who's this feast for? <laughs> it is for Jesus. <laughs> it's uh-huh. um, the, Satan. <laughs> it's in the temptation in the wilderness scene from, like, the Gospels. So, like, after Jesus gets baptized, uh, he goes out in the wilderness to fast for, I think it's 40 days. And, uh, and Satan comes up to him and tries to tempt him, like, hey, stop fasting. Eat eat this feast I've set out before you. And Jesus says, no, I judge these treats to be tricks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just tricks after all. Huh. I don't know. It seems funny that Satan would be like, what would Jesus really like? And he's like, yeah. ambergris. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> But but right but 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 again Milton is talking about like like specifically Satan was steaming uh, these meats with the ambergris. Mm. Oh wow. the, oh okay I see you yeah I I read that wrong yeah so it's it's like perfuming the meats yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also there could have been a layer of temptation here um, <laughs> because another fun sound effect we have on our show. It comes up every time a food is an aphrodisiac. Uh, And this one was, uh, at least according to Italian author, amongst a lot of other stuff, Casanova, who allegedly added it to chocolate mousse to use it as an aphrodisiac in the 1700s. So, you know, could have been something else going on as well. Have y'all noticed on on Savor, like, is there a pattern to the types of food ingredients that are believed to be to have aphrodisiac qualities is it kind of random or is it more like delicacies and luxury items or or strange foods that are considered strange in a certain time and place like what is there a pattern at all no it's all foods it's all foods ever okay. have been by someone at some point considered an aphrodisiac yeah um that's <laughs> we only have we found one instance or something was considered not. So far, we, sa- we still have a lot of topics to cover. Yeah. 
That um, was and it lettuce, was, right? And it was lettuce, <laughs> but lettuce. Hold your laughter, Joe, because lettuce also has been cited as an aphrodisiac. So, oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what we're to take from this. <laughs> I think it might have been a joke. I think it was kind of satire. Those okay. like 1,400 jokes I can't really pick up on, so he could have been, just been joking. <laughs> okay. But. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Uh I I believe that there's been some scientific inquiry into this in modern times concerning not lettuce, but uh, but ambergris. Uh, I I feel like I kept reading. I didn't look into it, so I didn't like find the scientific paper. But I saw in a lot of places people refer to some study that had been done in rats where um, it made them randy. Yeah. So Hmm. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) I feel like a lot of the big ones we talk about are usually meat somehow like animal related but it is everything lauren is correct it is like pretty much every episode like oh yeah <laughs> at yeah. some point um <laughs> someone thought this was an aphrodisiac today's episode is brought to you by technically speaking an intel podcast when you think about the future what kind of technology do you envision Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. 
no estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, going back to our Amber Grace's food timeline. Okay, so um, so some of these recipes even eventually made it to America. Um, Amelia Simmons, uh, who we talk about a lot on Savor, included in her uh, 1796 book, American Cookery, which was the first American cookbook actually published in America, a recipe for a kind of like whipped cream and egg white foam dessert sweetened with sugar and flavored with wine, lemon peel, and uh, musk or ambergris, termed their amber gum, uh, hmm. which stemmed from earlier English recipes for similar dishes. In 1826, influential and instrumental French chef Billiat Savarin uh, recommended people mix about a shilling's worth of ambergris in a mixture of sugar and chocolate for a tonic that was in the vein of coffee but wouldn't leave you over-caffeinated. Yeah, he described oh. this hot chocolate as um, the chocolate of the afflicted. Um, he recommended this mixture to, quote, any man who has drunk too deeply of the cup of pleasure, who finds his wit temporarily losing its edge, or who is tortured by a fixed idea. Oh, wow. That's very tortured specific. Tortured by a fixed idea. Wow. <laughs> I, I like that we're, we're bringing back the laxative concept again. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes around. <laughs> oh, boy. Get that idea out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, in the aforementioned Moby Dick, published in 1851, Melville does talk about culinary uses of ambergris or Ishmael, I should, I should say, really, um, in, uh, in uh, like sugar medicine drops in Turkish cooking and as a flavoring in claret wine, specifically. Um, mm. Though, yeah, as with many other flavorings, it mostly fell out of fashion when tropical spices and seasonings like cinnamon and vanilla became uh, more available and less expensive. Uh, by the time chemists synthesized one of those scent compounds in the mid-1900s, ambergris was pretty much relegated to perfume. Hmm. Yes. Um, but as Lauren said, there are people doing stuff with it still. Uh, like mm -hmm. in cocktails, I especially saw a lot of like beverage applications. Um, so it is still around, but yeah, not very common, <laughs> I would say. Are the two of you interested in trying ambergris flavored foods? Or if you have, if you have, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what the, uh, like the ethical issues with ambergris are that uh, would make it like why it is subject to, uh, you know, being a controlled animal product in some ways. Uh, I would assume that has something to do with like trying to discourage poaching or, or uh, harming of sperm whales, even though it does seem to be from what I can tell, generally collected not by killing the whale uh, mm -hmm. in the modern sense, yeah. but just like found on a beach. But um, uh, but yeah, so like if you put those concerns aside, whatever ethical concerns you have, like would you be interested in trying it in food? 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> I will I will say I do have, I'm, I'd like, I'm ready to try anything, but I am sensitive to really bad smells. Like one of the only times I've, uh, 
almost vomited in high school during an, um, our anatomy class was the smell of the owl pellet. I didn't care about anything huh. else. It sounds like amber green will be fine, um, but that's my only concern. I'm I want to try it. I don't know how the smell will go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also the same with durian, which we have long been waiting to try. The smell, I don't know, but I want to try it. How about you? Oh, yeah, I'm super intrigued. I mean, <laughs> I think I would want to figure out first, like, what is the deal with, like, why is it illegal and discouraged and all that is like, you know, if you were to actually buy some of it, is there a chance this is being like, actually, like, is a sperm whale being killed in order to to retrieve this or something? I, I think it really is what you were saying earlier, where just people, uh, where it is illegal, people just, or the government entity wants to discourage people from killing whales. Yeah. Uh, which is cool, which is great. I'm super yeah. into that. But uh, but that's why in international law, it's basically like, yeah, it's up to you. Isn't it also like not, in a lot of places, it's not, there aren't laws about it as a food because they don't necessarily consider it as a food. I think there's a huh. lot of places where they don't even, they haven't even thought of that part. <laughs> uh, the FDA has generally recognized it as safe though, so. Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, well, in that case, yeah, I mean this this poop is mighty mighty interesting to me, and uh, I I would I would taste of the coprolith. Absolutely. <laughs> now I wonder when you get it. Um, from what I understand, I think more often it would be sold. Maybe this is more in the in the sense of a perfumery, but more often it would be sold like as a tincture or something like that. Uh, I don't know how easy it is to just like get a hunk of it to as uh, as you were talking about in in Kemp's story like shave off pieces like it's a like it's a truffle um, that might be harder to get I, I'm not quite sure but I'm not sure either I didn't really look into it um, I, I I read some stories where people were talking about right receiving it as a tincture and some stories where people had like a rock of it um, mm. and so I'm not uh, without <laughs> without doing more research I can't I can't tell you <laughs> well. Lauren, Annie, I have so greatly enjoyed uh, you uh, joining me on the show today, and I'm really, really grateful that you took time out of your busy schedules to uh, to join us here today. I know, uh, I know, we're all very busy around here, so it it really means a lot. I greatly appreciate it. And hey, uh, where where can people find your work to hear uh, more of what you do? Oh, you can find us on the Saver Podcast, um, where we do cover. A bunch of things that I think are just in line with stuff to blow your mind, including <laughs> mm -hmm. fictional foods. Any kind of marine biology is always interesting <laughs> when we talk oh, about, yeah. like, scallops and what's going on there, lobsters, whoa. Um, so, <laughs> What is going on there? What's going on with scallops? Exactly. <laughs> they're so cool. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, oh, their eyes? You know, yeah, their they're, eyes? They're oh. weird eyes. Oh, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, we have uh, a lot of topics that I think have great crossovers. So you can find us there. And we are on all the social medias uh, related. Yeah, yeah. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SaverPod, um, as we say at the end of every episode, which is why that was so sing-songy when I just said it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, also, right, yeah. It, Annie's on a show... An, on a show called uh, Stuff Mom Never Told You. That's a, a, a podcast about like intersectional feminism. And uh, I've got a short form show called Brain Stuff, uh, general science and history that Joe used to write for the YouTube version of back in the days when we did that. 
that was a uh, some time ago. That was an mm-hmm. that was an ambergris seasoning lifetime ago. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, once again, I really appreciate you joining me today, uh, and oh, it, it has been such pleasure yes. talking to you as always. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this was thank a blast. You. I, yes. yes. Any 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 time we can talk about squid beaks and whale poop. Yep, mm. we're there. <laughs> All right, let's see. To wrap things up here, uh, hey, if, you, if you're new to the show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast, some kind of science and culture intersecting topics, uh, where core episodes publish every week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Monday of each week, we read back listener mail, and I'll give you the email address if you want to get in touch in just a moment. Uh, on Wednesdays, we run a short scripted episode called The Artifact or The Monster Fact or even uh, New Forms. Of short scripted episodes are emerging. On Fridays, we do a show called Weird House Cinema, where uh, my co-host Robert Lamb and I just watch weird movies and talk about them. Uh, Well-known or obscure, good or bad, all types of movies, as long as there's something strange about them. Uh, Let's see. A huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.